Next on Abounding Grace with Ed Taylor. The church is a family, but the family's under, under siege so often. Maybe a large part of the family, maybe a small part of the family, but listen, some of you don't even have family outside of the body of Christ. But this is the one that God adopted you into. And the bonds of the church family are often greater than our blood relations. That's why it hurts when there's disunity. That's why uh, flesh-inspired heartlessness is among us. That's why the heart of Jesus is seen through love, compassion, tenderness, and courtesy. And, and, and this is true for any church. Like, this, isn't, this is true for every church. This is the truth of God's Word. This is amazing grace. Hello, friend, and welcome to Abounding Grace. We are delighted you can join us as we pick up where we left off in our series based in 2 Samuel. We see rebellion all around us, from the child who puts their foot down in disobedience to their parents, to the adult in prison who refuses to comply with the laws of the land. We even see rebellion applauded on TV and in the music of the day. But unrighteous rebellion is far from encouraged in the scriptures. In fact, as we'll soon see, there are destructive consequences that come to those that would go down that road. Ed Taylor takes us now to 2 Samuel 20. Chapter 20, 2 Samuel chapter 20. We're coming to the end here of our study in Samuel. We only have a few chapters left. Chapter 19 was a very powerful time in the Word. It was a chapter of forgiveness. It was a chapter of David now seeing victory having his enemies defeated, and his response was one of humility. And if you weren't here last week, we looked at a Bible study I entitled, The Power of Forgiveness. And we not only looked at it in the, look at, studied it in the life of David, but we pulled from that some very basic foundational principles and benefits and the power of forgiveness in your life and mine. Now often we have been conditioned to see a story in a certain way. It's a familiar story. Boy meets girl. There's a little bit of happiness and fun. Then they meet with some turmoil, some difficulty to get through. Then there's a little hardship and heartbreak. Then in the middle of the movie or the middle of the cartoon, the music changes a little bit gets a little more upbeat. They get through the difficulty together. Things get a little bit brighter. The problems in their life get solved. Their frowns become smiles. The people that came against them seem to be defeated. Enemies and foes are done, done away with. And the story always ends this way. They lived happily. They lived happily. Are you guys familiar with that story? It's been told a thousand times. And I have to say, for those of us that are very familiar with the happily ever after stories, 
We really believe that's going to happen for us. I don't just mean in eternity. I don't just mean that, yes, everything's going to end well as we're in the presence of God. But I mean in reality. There's some difficulties in your life. There's some turmoil. You're in that story somewhere. It may not be boy meets girl, but story in life in general. You meet a few hardships. You get through a little bit. You're looking up ahead. You're thinking there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's going to be happily ever after, but it doesn't always end that way. Life's not a fairy tale. Life's not fictional. Life, we don't write our own stories. It's not real life. Not everything ends with us walking off into the sunset happily ever after. Yes, beyond this world, happily ever after in the presence of the Lord is a very real truth. Not rooted in fairy tale, but rooted in the historical truth of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. God came to be one of us. He sacrificed his life for you and me. He died and rose again so that our sins can be forgiven. So if we take that narrative, yes, there is heaven awaits us. The best is yet to come. But earth is filled with, a, with the stain of sin and the difficulties of sin. And not everything ends in, in a good way. Why do I bring that up? Well, because chapter 19 was one of the best chapters in the life of David. It was one of the best seasons in his life. He comes finally to a place where, well, the sad, difficult rebellion of his son come, came to an end. Now, he did grieve the loss of his son, as any dad would. And yet after working through that and understanding his role in the leadership in his family, it went well, and, and he began to forgive, and, and he brought peace back into the kingdom. And, and what was looking so bad, I mean, if we walked, walked, wrote this out and put music to it, that's exactly what it would be. It would be a little bit of music, then it would be a dark time, then it would be a light time, and then we end chapter 19, wow, they're back. It's good. David's on the throne. There's unity in the kingdom. But 2 Samuel doesn't end in chapter 19. There's a chapter 20. And those of you who read ahead, you noticed in verse 1 of chapter 20, and there happened to be a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So every man of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri, and the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. Not everybody's happy with David. Not everybody wants unity. Not everybody wanted the unified kingdom. And this discontented Benjamite, if you'll notice, he's called in verse 1 a rebel. Some of your Bibles might say a son of Belial. I mean, he's of the rotten sort. And he rises up another rebellion. He, he rises up and stirs up people to continue to go against David, even in times of peace. And we need to be careful uh, in verse 2, every man of Israel deserted David. Uh, the context is very important here. It doesn't mean every single person of the Israel. He only got, he carved out a, a, a section of the nation. It wasn't every single person of Israel, but it was every single person that decided to follow him. And with David, every single person that would once again choose to rebel with him was still yet another blow to his heart as leader. Because we not only have been raised on fairy tales, but we've also been raised uh, probably in our home pretty much. Uh, maybe in your home, if, if you're a good little boy, then what's going to happen to you? Good things. 
If you're a good little girl, then what's going to happen to you? Well, you're going to get dessert, and you're going to get uh, extra blessings or a doll or whatever it might be. But if you're a bad little boy, not good. Pain and difficulty. And, and so we want to be good. Even before we were saved, there's inside of us a desire to be good because there's a reward for being good. And we want to avoid being bad because there's a consequence for being bad. But we know in life that bad things happen to good little boys and good little girls. And good things happen to bad guys and bad girls. We don't see equity and we don't see true justice this side of eternity yet. And as we end chapter 19, David doing the right thing at the right time, I mean, come on, I'd expect chapter 20 to open up and the kingdom lived happily ever after. But there's an added component to the difficulty in life. It's not just our behavior. There's an added component that the Bible describes as spiritual warfare. That God, he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but the devil hates you. That's good news to come to church to learn. The devil hates you and me and has a horrible plan for our lives. And I'll reveal his plan to you right now. He's come to kill you, to steal from you, and destroy you. How's that for a bedtime story? But it's good to know our enemy. It's good to understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The people in our life are not our enemies. We have a real enemy who is doing anything possible, not playing by the rules, trying to take David out here by using a man. He's a rebel. He's a rebel blowing a trumpet, speaking out loud to see who might follow him, and some do. So David, it says in verse 3, came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion, and supported them, but not, did not go into them, so they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. David, these women were, were defiled by Absalom, as Absalom established his kingdom, he went into the concubines. But I think finally David's at a place in his life, because this is the big Bible question that people ask. If adultery and multiple wives, if that's truly a sin uh, from God's perspective, sexual sin, then why does David have so many wives and seem to get away with it? He didn't get away with it, and God never approved of it. He's always called it sin. It's sin then, it's sin today. But I think finally now, with all that David's been through, he finally gets it and no more. He's stopping it, setting them aside. And you have to ask yourself, don't you, how, what's it going to take for you to finally say enough is enough? Is it going to take all the damage and difficulty? Because, I mean, the loving, the, the, the loving nature of God is going to pursue you and me, but that, that pursuit as we're running and doing our own thing can often lead to pain. But here, finally, David puts away his concubines and he stops the multiple marriages and, and doesn't go into them any longer. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah. But he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed for him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bitri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape for us. This was a real rebellion. 
David could see he has his mind about him again, and he could see that this could be worse than what Absalom did. And he's going to put an end to it. He's going to stop it. Now Amasa, you'll recall, was given the position in place of Joab in chapter 19 to be the general over the king's army. While this decision to make Amasa the ruler was rooted in David's forgiveness of him, his grace, chapter 19 could say, it's a, you could say that chapter 19 is a chapter of forgiveness, but it's also a chapter of grace. Although Amasa being put over as king, he was once Absalom's general. It was a pretty, it was a political move, but it was also a move of forgiveness and to build the kingdom together. It built something in them that was very important. I don't want you to miss this. We're not going to spend a lot of time in it, but enough time for you to understand something about the topic of suspicion. Because Amasa wasn't fully trusted. He, just a few weeks prior, was anti-David. But David forgave him, not only forgave him, but made him the general of the army. But not everybody forgave him, especially Joab, because he took Joab's place. And Joab was rotten to the core. Even though he's a good friend of David, he was back and forth kind of looking out for himself. And it says here, it says that he delayed, in verse 5, he delayed longer than the set time. And this delay flipped out people, and they began to suspect that Amasa was still against David. Suspicion, when it comes to other believers, when it comes to the body of Christ, suspicion is a very dangerous thing in our lives. It's a diabolical tool of the enemy to divide us and distract us from him, and ultimately for one another, to bring division. It's one of the tools that the devil used to bring division is suspicion. And oftentimes, suspicion is developed through friction. Listen, anytime you have a lot of people together, you're going to have people rubbing up against each one another and, and in the body of Christ and, and in our family, if you come from a large family, or maybe you have a family living with you right now, and it was a temporary thing, but, you know, after it went a long, little longer than the temporary thing, and, and you start to get on one another's nerves, or you got idiosyncrasies, it's all friction. It's all normal. When you have a lot of people together, it's normal. I looked up the word friction just because I think of it, you know, coming rubbing up against each other, but there's a definition for friction. It means this, the clash of differing opinions or attitudes. A clashing. And whenever large groups of people are gathered together, friction is bound to happen sooner or later. I'm sure you've seen it in the church body. And I'm sure you've seen it among your own church family. But the question really is, is you made, have you made room in your heart for the friction that's bound to happen in your church or in your family or in your workplace? Or are you so sensitive to that that it rubs you the wrong way and you make it worse by your response to it? Friction's bound to happen. Friction leading to division, leading to suspicion. Did you hear and did you know? And then suspicion is so desperately wicked. I know we let our guards down when we're around other believers, you know, because we're at church. And, but, but this is not heaven. We're not in heaven yet. Somebody once said, to live above with the saints we love we will certainly be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. So true. Even though it shouldn't be that way, the church family should be a refuge and a help for those that are in need of touch from God. The church family is a mixture. It's a mixture of unbelievers and believers. It's a mixture of men and women in the spirit, men and women in the flesh. It's a mixture of the sheep and the goats. It's a mixture of sheep and sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. It's a mixture. Jesus talked about the church and believers as weed among the tares. 
And, you know, you really don't know, you really don't know which is wheat and which is the tear. Speaking of a, of a kernel of wheat, you know, a, a plant, a, a wheat plant that comes up, uh, they look the same uh, if just at first appearance. But the difference is, is as a wheat becomes mature, uh, the, the corn, the, the, the little husk or whatever's inside of the husk, all the little wheat things are right in there. And, and as they grow into the husk area, it starts to bow down. There's a true humility among the real wheat. The tares are empty. They're fake. And they stand straight up. They don't bend because there's nothing there. The, wheat, the true wheat bends. And it, it's such a beautiful picture. I should have found a picture to show you so I could explain it visually to you. But if you get the picture, just as the, as the, the wheat is fully grown, it starts to bow down. And what a great picture it is for you and me as believers. The more mature you and I are, the more humble, the more, the more we allow the Lord to work out his will in our lives. The church is a mixture. It's a place of worship, a community of the redeemed, an open door for those that need to enter into a relationship with Jesus. But if we're not on guard spiritually, if we're not watching out for one another, friction and division is what we'll experience. And we need to watch out for it. And this is what Charles Spurgeon said to a group of Young men that were going into the ministry, it's in a book he, he, that, that's entitled Lectures to My Students. And he had a lecture there. And it might, that, this might also be in the, in the public domain. You can search for it. But the lecture is called A Blind Eye and a Deaf Ear. And he was teaching men that were going into the ministry. And I think by way of application, all of us as men and women of God that are in a church that want to serve the Lord, that want to make a difference, it's very important for us to learn to have a blind eye and a deaf ear to certain things. That's just another way of saying what I've shared with you many years, to learn how to have a thick skin while you maintain a soft heart, to not, every, not let everything affect you, not let everything take you down, and learn just, hey, man, I'm going to have a blind eye to that in order to be effective, and I'm going to have a deaf ear to that in order to be effective. And here's what he says, and I quote, Avoid with your whole soul the spirit of suspicion which sours some men's lives, and to all things from which you might harshly draw an unkind inference, turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. Suspicion makes a man a torment to himself and a spy toward others. Once begins to, sus once begins to suspect and causes for distrust will multiply around you, and your very suspiciousness will create the major part of them. Many a friend has been transformed into an enemy by being suspected. Do not therefore look about you with the eyes of mistrust, nor listen as an eavesdropper with the quick ear of fear. To go about the congregation ferreting out disaffection like a gamekeeper after rabbits is a mean employment and is generally rewarded most sorrowfully. That's what's happening with Amasa here. Because of his delay, people are suspicious of him. And you, you, you might be saying, Ed, how did you get that out of that verse? Well, I got it out of this verse and some of the other ones we're about to read. It's the context. So let's move on to verse 7. So Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. And when they were at large stone, which is now in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So he shows up. And Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fashioned in its sheath at his hips, and he was going forward. It fell out. And then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. 
But Amasa did not notice that the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground. And he did not strike him again, thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. Joab, not only did he not like being replaced, I believe Joab's making a decision not just of revenge here, but of suspicion. And when Amasa finally does show up, he takes the advantage, takes the opportunity to go, I'm going to save David any of the grief. This guy's not for us. And he pulls a little trick on him and pretends to be affectionate to him, you know, kind of greeting him as men in his army. And he kills him and he leaves him laying there in a pool of blood to take off after Sheba. In verse 11, it says, Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway, and when the man saw that the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. Amasa, the general, they don't know what's going on in Joab's heart or anything. This is a very practical thing. Amasa's dead. He's wallowing, and it's very obvious on the road, and everybody passing by doesn't want to go to war anymore because their general's dead. And they're not going forward. So somebody wised up and moved him off and said, if you're for Joab and David, then you need to follow him right now. But they wouldn't move with this, with this body here. And somebody removes him, verse 13, from the highway, and they take off to fight. And he went, verse 14, through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Maaka and all the Barites. And so they gathered together and also went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maaka, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. So Sheba gets to the city of Abel, and then there's a battle that takes place. The men of Joab surround the city, begin to destroy the city's walls, enter in to destroy Sheba and his troops. And even though this is warfare in its raw form, it becomes a type and a picture of the ongoing battles in our own lives. I mean, this is real war. Um, and unfortunately, for some of you, you've seen real war with your own eyes. So many of us haven't. Um, but we're grateful for you standing in the gap for us and for our freedoms here and some of the things you've had to see and experience. That's what this is. It's just real war. It's raw. This is Abounding Grace, and you're listening to a portion of a series in 2 Samuel from pastor and Bible teacher Ed Taylor. Request a CD copy of the message or the entire series when you give us a call at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Another option is to go to calvaryaurora.org where we house Ed's teachings. And we have a couple of apps that we'd like to recommend that are free and available on all platforms. Search for Calvary Aurora and the Grace FM Colorado apps. You'll be able to access Pastor Ed's teachings there. Ed, each month we pick out a resource that we believe God can use to help our listeners in their walk with Him. What do we have here in July? Larry, in July we have a real special book. It's called The Holy Land Key, Unlocking End Times Prophecy Through the Lives of God's People in Israel. And a very good friend of mine, Pastor Ray Bentley, is the author. And it's not, what he does is he doesn't want us just to read prophecy, but he wants us to step into its fulfillment. He wants our eyes to be open to little-known aspects of prophecy, like God's master plan uh, on the seven feasts of the Lord and the ingathering of God's people and the ways that Israelis are even hearing from God today. 
uh, and on and on the list goes. So I definitely want you to understand the days in which you live. I want us to, and I believe it's God's heart for us to understand the signs of the times. And just like David Jeremiah wrote as a, as a, a prelude to the book, he said, the Holy Land key causes you to look over your shoulder at God's continued blessing upon his people and to look forward to the many prophecies yet to be fulfilled. The Holy Land Key by Ray Bentley. Please, please, please get it. Either support Abounding Grace or get it on Kindle, but build your spiritual library. And I just want to take the time to thank you uh, for supporting the radio ministry here. Uh, Whether you give a lot or a little, every dollar, every penny, every quarter goes to the production and the the everything that it takes to get Abounding Grace on the radio and and you help defray the costs, and we're so grateful to partner with you. Um, literally, uh, for for over 16 years now, 17 years, Abounding Grace Radio has been on uh, ministering to people, and what an honor. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Get the book of the month, and thank you for your support. Ask for a copy of The Holy Land Key, Unlocking End Times Prophecy Through the Lives of God's People in Israel, as you call 877-30-GRACE or turn to calvaryaurora.org on the web. We'll get right back into 2 Samuel tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel Aurora.